Section 20 of Report to the President by the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Michael, Sussex, Wisconsin, USA, January 2021. Range Safety Television coverage of the Challenger accident vividly showed the solid rocket boosters emerging from the ball of fire and smoke. The erratic and uncontrolled powered flight of such large components could have posed a potential danger to populated areas. The responsible official accordingly destroyed the solid rocket boosters. To understand how the booster rockets were destroyed, one must understand the purpose of a range safety system, its functions, and the special considerations that apply to shuttle launches. The Eastern Space and Missile Center operates a range safety system for all Department of Defense and NASA launch activities in the Cape Canaveral area. The primary responsibility of the range safety system, run by the U.S. Air Force, is to protect people and property from abnormal vehicle flights during first stage ascent. To fulfill its range safety responsibilities, the Eastern Space and Missile Center staff supervises on-site launch preparations and tracks rockets and vehicles until they are far enough away from populated areas to remove any danger. When such a danger arises during the ascent stage of a launch, the vehicle may have to be destroyed to minimize harm to persons and property on the ground. Every major vehicle flown from the Cape Canaveral area has carried an explosive destruct system that could be armed and fired by the range safety officer. Range safety procedures and launch activities from Kennedy are governed by the Department of Defense and NASA documents. The primary regulatory publication is DOD document 3200.11, Use, Management, and Operation of DOD Major Ranges and Test Facilities. Space Shuttle Range Safety System Both Space Shuttle Solid Rocket Boosters and the External Tank are fitted with explosive charges. These can be detonated on the command of the Range Safety Officer if the vehicle crosses the limits established by flight analysis before launch and the vehicle is no longer in controlled flight. The determination of controllability is made by the Flight Director in Mission Control, Houston, who is in communication with the range safety officer. Following an encoded arm command, the existing package on the shuttle system is detonated by a subsequent encoded quote-unquote fire command. The range safety officer who sends the commands is the key decision maker who is finally responsible for preventing loss of life and property that could result if the vehicle or components should fall in populated areas. The destruct criteria are agreed to by NASA and the Eastern Space and Missile Center. A range safety system for the shuttle launches was approved in concept in 1974. Under that concept, the capability to destroy the system in flight from the ground was to be installed in the form of radio-detonated explosive charges triggered by encoded signals. Such a range safety package appeared necessary for a variety of reasons based upon the initial shuttle design that included ejection seats. If the crew were to eject, the unmanned vehicle would be uncontrollable 
and thus a much greater danger than a manned system. After the first four test flights, however, the ejection seats were deactivated. Retaining the range safety package when the crew could no longer escape was an emotional and controversial decision. In retrospect, however, the Challenger accident has demonstrated the need for some type of range safety measure. Since the current range safety system does not allow for selective destruction of components, the Commission believes that NASA and the Air Force should critically re-examine whether the destruct package on the external tank might be removed. Range Safety Activities, January 28, 1986 The range safety officer for the Challenger flight on January 28th was Major Gerald F. Beringer, U.S. Air Force. He reported that the mission was normal until about 76 seconds after launch. The following description is from Major Beringer's written statement, prepared approximately two hours after the accident. Quote, Watching the IP, or impact point, displays and optics, I observed the primary and alternative sources diverge significantly at about T plus 76, or 76 seconds into the flight. At about the same time I heard, through monitored communications, the vehicle had exploded. Concurrently, I saw the explosion on the video monitor on my right. A white cloud seemed to envelop the vehicle. Small pieces exploded out of it. The IP displays, PRI and ALT indications, were jumping around wildly as I was about to recommend we do nothing as it appeared the entire vehicle had exploded when I observed what appeared to be an SRB, solid rocket booster stabilized and flying toward the upper left corner of the display. As it appeared stabilized, I felt it might endanger land or shipping, and as the ET, or external tank, had apparently exploded, I recommended to the SRSO, the Senior Range Safety Officer, we send functions. I sent arm, waited about 10 seconds, and sent fire. Fire was sent at about 110 seconds." End quote. During the flight and prior to the accident, tracking and control functions performed normally. There were no communication problems throughout the range or with the NASA Flight Dynamics Officer in Mission Control Houston. Range safety data displays did not provide useful information immediately after the accident. The range safety officer depended upon the video displays for evidence concerning the performance of the solid rocket boosters. Without that information, the range safety officer would not have sent the destruct signals. Detailed studies from Marshall had indicated that the solid rocket boosters would tumble if prematurely separated. That assumption made possible the prediction of impact points. When the Challenger solid rocket boosters separated after the explosion, however, they continued powered, stabilized flight, and did not tumble, contrary to the expectations upon which range safety rules had been based. Without the live television pictures, the range safety officer would not have known about the unexpected performance of the boosters. The Eastern Space and Missile Center and NASA have appropriately initiated a comprehensive review of the shuttle range safety requirements and their implementation.
The events of the Challenger accident demonstrate the need for a range safety package of some type on the solid rocket boosters. However, the review should examine whether technology exists that would allow combining the range safety function for the solid rocket boosters with a thrust termination system and whether, if technically feasible, it would be desirable. Post-Flight Analysis The Mission Control Center in Houston had no more warning of the impending disaster than the range safety officer had. All information that might be useful in recognizing problems that the crew or the mission control flight team could do something about is available to flight controllers during the launch, but that information constitutes only a fraction of the electronic data being telemetered from the shuttle. To ensure that nothing was overlooked during the launch, Johnson flight controllers conducted a thorough analysis of the telemetry data on January 29 and 30, 1986. Their review of the recorded events revealed that the chamber pressure inside the solid rocket booster began to differ from that of the left booster approximately 60 seconds after liftoff. A sampling of that information is available to a flight controller during ascent, but the internal pressures of the boosters are normally not monitored during the first stage. The readings are used only to indicate whether the crew can expect an on-time or slightly delayed separation of the boosters from the orbital and the external tank. The difference in pressure during the brief ascent of Challenger was small, and pressures were within acceptable limits. The replay of the data also indicated that the flight control system was responding properly to external forces and continued to control the shuttle until the accident. No unusual motion responses occurred, and inside the cockpit there were no alarms. There are no indications that the crew had any warning of a problem before the fire and the disintegration of the space shuttle. Findings 1. The space shuttle system was not designed to survive a failure of the solid rocket boosters. There are no corrective actions that can be taken if the boosters do not operate properly after ignition, i.e., there is no ability to separate an orbiter safely from thrusting boosters and no ability for the crew to escape the vehicle during first stage ascent. Neither the mission control team nor the 51L crew had any warning of impending disaster. Even if there had been warning, there were no actions available to the crew or the mission control team to avert disaster. Landing, another critical phase. The consequences of faulty performance in any dynamic and demanding flight environment can be catastrophic. The Commission was concerned that an insufficient safety margin may have existed in areas other than shuttle ascent. Entry and landing of the shuttle are dynamic and demanding, with all the risks and complications inherent in flying a heavyweight glider with a very steep glide path. Since the shuttle crew cannot divert to any alternative landing site after entry, the landing decision must be both timely and accurate. In addition, the landing gear, which includes wheels, tires, and brakes, must function properly. These considerations will be discussed for both normal and abort landings. Abort Site Weather the acceptability of weather at abort landing sites, both inside and outside the continental United States, is a critical factor in the launch decision process. The local weather minima for the actual launch are necessarily restrictive. 
The minima for acceptably safe abort landings are even more restrictive. Of course, the wider the range of acceptable weather conditions, the greater the possibility of launch on any given day. As a result of past efforts to increase the likelihood of launch, abort landing weather criteria are currently less restrictive than the criteria for planned landings. The program also allows consideration of launching with a light rain shower over the Kennedy runway. Although engineering assessments indicate that the tile damage that would result would not affect shuttle controllability, it would be a serious setback to the program in terms of budget and schedule. This rule is designed to allow the program to weigh the probability of a return to launch site abort and decide whether it is worthwhile to launch and accept the risk of a setback because of tile damage should a return to launch site abort be required. This risk appears to be unnecessary. The programmatic decision to accept worse weather for an abort landing, in a situation where other conditions are also less than optimal, is not consistent with a conservative approach to flight safety. The desire to launch is understandable and abort landings are indeed improbable. However, if an abort is required, it is irrelevant that it was unlikely. An emergency, the loss of a space shuttle main engine, has already occurred to produce the necessity. Abort situations will require landing under emergency conditions on limited runways with orbiter weights higher than normal. The difficulty should not be compounded by high crosswinds or reduced visibility. The Commission recommended that this subject be reviewed and those reviews are currently underway. Orbiter Tires and Brakes the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel has shared NASA's concern over the orbiter wheels, tires, and brakes since the beginning of the shuttle program. This is summarized in its 1982 annual report. Quote, the landing gear, including wheels, tires, and brakes, is vital for safe completion of any mission. With the future flights going to higher weights and lower margins, possibly even negative margins, it is imperative that existing capabilities be fully explored, documented, and improved where necessary. End quote. Orbiter tires. Orbiter tires are manufactured by B.F. Goodrich and are designed to support a space shuttle landing up to 240,000 pounds at 225 knots with 20 knots of crosswind. The tires have a 34-ply rating using 16 cords. Though they have successfully passed testing programs, they have shown excessive wear during the landings at Kennedy, especially when crosswinds were involved. The tires are rated as criticality 1 because loss of a single tire could cause loss of control and subsequent loss of vehicle and crew. Based upon approach and landing test experience, crosswind testings was added to the Space Shuttle Tire Certification Testing. To date, Orbiters have landed with a maximum of eight knots of crosswind at the Kennedy runway, resulting in heavy tire wear, both spin-up wear that occurs initially at touchdown and crosswind wear induced by side forces and differential braking. While dynamometer tests indicated that these tires should withstand conditions well above the design specification, the tests have not been able to simulate runway surface effects accurately. A Langley Research Center test track has been used to give a partial simulation of the strains caused by a landing at Kennedy. 
This test apparatus will be upgraded for further testing in the summer of 1986 in an attempt to include all the representative flight loads and conditions. The tires have undergone extensive testing to examine effects of vacuum exposure, temperature extremes, and cuts. They also have undergone leakage, side force, load, storage, and durability tests. The tires have qualified in all these areas. To date, tests using the simulated Kennedy runway at Langley indicate that spin-up wear by itself will not lead to tire failure. Tests using the Kennedy test surface do indicate that spin-up wear is worse if the tire is subjected to crosswind. For this reason, the crosswind allowable for normal landings is limited to 10 knots. This restriction also permits a safe stop if the nose wheel steering system fails. The limitation is being reviewed to see if it is too high for abort landings involving nose wheel steering failure. Testing has not been conducted to ensure that excessive crosswind wear will not be a hazard when landing on the various hard surface runways with maximum crosswinds and failed nose wheel steering. Main tire loads are increased substantially after nose wheel touchdown because of the large downward wing force at its negative angle of attack. The total force on each side can be nearly 200,000 pounds, which exceeds the capability of a single tire. In fact, the touchdown loads alone can exceed the load-bearing ability of a single tire. The obvious result is that if a single tire fails before nose gear touchdown, the vehicle will have a serious, if not catastrophic, directional control problem following the expected failure of the adjacent tire. This failure case has led a criticality 1 rating on the tires. Before nose gear touchdown, control is maintained through a rudder. However, it loses effectiveness as the speed brake is opened and the vehicle decelerates. After nose gear touchdown, simulations have shown that directional control is possible using the nose wheel steering system for most subsequent failures, but not for some cases in which crosswinds exceed the current flight rule limits. Because of the consequences of this failure, crew members strongly recommend that the nose wheel steering system be modified to achieve full redundancy. Tire side loads have been difficult to measure and subsequently model because of test facility limitations. Two mathematical models were developed from early dynameter tests and extrapolation from nose wheel tire tests. New dynamic tests of main gear tires show a more flexible side response, which has been incorporated into the latest mathematical model. A reasonably accurate model is required both for nose wheel steering engineering studies and for crew training simulators. The orbiter tire in use meets specifications and has been certified through testing. However, testing has not reproduced results observed on Kennedy runways. To date, the only blown tire has been caused by a brake lockup and resulting skid wear. Several improvements have been considered to increase protection against the high-speed blown tire case. One would add a skirt at the bottom of the main gear strut to take the peak load during nose gear touchdown. Another would add a roll-on rim capability to the main gear wheel. None of the possible improvements has been funded, however, nor has any been seriously studied. In summary, two blown tires before nose gear touchdown would likely be catastrophic, 
and the potential for that occurrence should be minimized. NASA has directed testing in the fall of 1986 to examine actual tire, wheel, and strut failures to better understand this failure case. Orbiter Brakes The orbiter brake design chosen in 1973 was based on the orbiter's design weight. It used beryllium rotors and stators with carbon lining. However, as the actual orbiter weight grew, the response from the shuttle program management was not a redesign of the brakes, but an extension of required runway length from 10,000 to 12,500 feet. Thus, the brakes for many years have been known to have little or no margin, even if they performed as originally designed. There are four brake assemblies, one for each main landing gear wheel. Each assembly uses four rotors and three statters, the statters being attached to a torque tube. Carbon pads are attached to provide the friction surface. The orbiter brakes were designed to absorb 36.5 million foot-pounds of energy for normal stops and 55.5 million foot-pounds of energy for one emergency stop. The brakes were tested and qualified using standard dynamometer tests. Actual flight experience has shown brake damage on most flights. The damage is classified by cause as either dynamic or thermal. The dynamic damage is usually characterized by damage to rotors and carbon lining chipping, plus beryllium and pad retainer cracks. On the other hand, the thermal damage has been due to heating of the stator caused by energy absorption during braking. The beryllium becomes ductile and has a much reduced yield strength at temperatures possible during braking. Both types of damage are typical of early brake development problems experienced in the aviation industry. Brake damage has required that special crew procedures be developed to assure successful braking. To minimize dynamic damage and to keep any loose parts together, the crews were told to hold the brakes on constantly from the time of the first application until their speed slows to about 40 knots. For a normal landing, braking is initiated at about 130 knots. For abort landings, braking would be initiated at about 150 knots. Braking speeds are established to avoid exceeding the temperature limits of the stator. The earlier the brakes are applied, the higher the heat rate. The longer the brakes are applied, the higher the temperature will be, no matter what the heat rate. To minimize problems, the commander must get the brake energy into the brakes at just the right rate and just the right time before the beryllium yields and causes a low-speed wheel lockup. At a commission hearing on April 3, 1986, astronaut John Young described the problem the shuttle commander has with the system. Quote, it is very difficult to use precisely right now. In fact, we're finding out we don't really have a good technique for applying the brakes. We don't believe that astronauts or pilots should be able to break the brakes. End quote. Missions 5, 51D, and 61C had forms of thermal stator damage. The Mission 51D case resulted in a low-speed wheel lockup and a subsequent blown tire at Kennedy. The Mission 61C case did not progress to a lockup, but came very close. The amount of brake energy that can be obtained from normal braking procedures is about 40 million foot-pounds before the first stator falls off. 
The Mission 61C damage occurred at 34 million foot-pounds, but had not progressed to the lockup condition. Inspection of failed stators clearly shows the ductile failure response of the beryllium, and hence, it appears that this failure mechanism cannot contribute to a high-speed lockup and subsequent tire failure. It should be noted that the brake specification called for a maximum energy of 55 million foot-pounds. Qualification testing of the abort braking profile showed that 55 million foot-pounds was the point of first stator failure. During qualification tests, the brakes continued to operate until all stators failed, providing about another 5 million foot-pounds of energy. Based upon the thermal response of the beryllium under load, it appears that the early heavy braking required for transatlantic abort landings produces more than 40 million foot-pounds that have resulted in a thermal failure of the brakes during the normal braking profile. No numbers are certain, however, and clearly the qualification testing did not point out the current thermal problems. The assumed normal and abort brake energy limits for the current design should be reinvestigated. The 61C damage resulted from only 34 million foot-pounds of energy, and destructive testing should be accomplished to establish the short runway, transatlantic abort landing, brake limit, and appropriate abort landing planning factors. NASA is considering stator improvements, including steel or thicker beryllium stators, and has undertaken a carbon brake program that would provide a major margin improvement and less dynamic damage because of fewer parts. Additional testing is currently underway and more is planned to evaluate these brake modifications and to perform destructive testing. The testing results are expected to conform more closely to flight conditions because landing gear dynamics have been included. Early tests have confirmed the energy levels for the abort braking profile with a modified brake, and future tests may provide confidence in the normal braking profile. The Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel recognized NASA's efforts in its 1985 annual report. Quote, a carbon brake review was conducted by NASA in early 1985 and resulted in agreement to procure a carbon brake system for the orbiter. There is concern by the Space Transformation System Management about the availability of resources to support the development of the carbon brakes, given the many competing requirements and the projected constrained budget during the 1986 period. The program management considers the development of the carbon brake system to be of the highest priority, and the panel supports this position as it has in the past. End quote. Because of the brake problems encountered in the program, two reviews have been conducted by NASA. The third review will take place during the summer of 1986. The review board members have studied all of the orbiter brake data and have compared orbiter problems to industry problems. Improvements suggested have been implemented. It is the consensus of NASA and industry experts that high priority should be placed on correcting orbiter brake problems and that brake redesign should proceed with emphasis on developing higher energy and torque capacity. Concern within the program about the entire deceleration system, landing gear, wheels, tires, brakes, and nose wheel steering, has been the subject of numerous reviews, meetings, and design efforts. These concerns continued to be expressed by the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel in 1982. Quote, 
Studies of shuttle landings to date show that tire, wheel, and brake stresses are approaching limits. Short runways with inadequate overruns are cause for concern. For instance, a transatlantic abort to Dakar, end quote. These issues are difficult, and the required technology is challenging, but most agree that it is appropriate and important that NASA resolve each of these problems. A conservative approach to the landing phase of flight demands reliable performance by all critical systems. End of Section 20. Recording by John Michael, Sussex, Wisconsin, USA, January 2021.